and Savior Jesus Christ, I'm reading a book called Come Back, Barbara. I don't know if you've heard about it, but it's written by a Presbyterian pastor whose daughter walked away from the church. And so some of us perhaps can relate. And at the age of 17, she said to her parents, Mom, Dad, I don't want your rules and your morals. I don't want to act like a Christian anymore, and I'm not going to. It was shocking to them because this was a young lady who had professed her faith before the church at uh, one point in her life and was even instrumental in, in leading at least one person to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it came as a, a complete shock to them. And yet, as they now had to admit, she had merely conformed outwardly to the family standards. And they, while she was growing up, had avoided asking some of the more sticky questions and dealing with some of the doctrinal issues of, of Christianity that would have resulted in conflict. And they had chosen instead to accept her, what they now came to believe was her superficial performance. And as we said, uh, a few of us can relate. Some of us may have siblings who were raised in the same Christian family as we were. Maybe we have children who were catechized and schooled in the Christian faith and then walk away. In fact, truth be told, every Christian, and, and uh, I mean, uh, this is a real Christian, unless you're merely going through the motions and you're just putting on, like this young lady, uh, a superficial performance. Every Christian from time to time, we have seasons and moments of doubt when we ask, can this really be true? We all have that from time to time. And that's why the Christian faith is something that we must wrestle with. And not just take as a, as a matter of, uh, of this is what I've been told and this is what I believe. We need to wrestle. We need to continue to dig in. We need to explore these things. We need to seek to plumb the depths of Christianity uh, to uncover the mysteries. And, and not just uh, in the church alone or as a family, but personally and individually. And this is something that you discover is a lifelong task and, and certainly one that we must never get tired of. The Apostle Paul, in fact, wrote, uh, wrote to the Christians in Ephesus one time. Um, in, uh, this is in Ephesians 3, verses 14 to 19. This is what he wrote to them, to the converts there. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And so Paul writes to the Ephesians that he was praying for them, that they would experience this growth, that their growth would expand and grow deeper always. And there's a reason for that. Because the more we understand and the more we grasp about Christianity, the more we grow to love the Lord and the more we become more confident of his salvation. And when we go through difficult times, the more we are able to trust in Him. And it is something that we must be uh, studying and growing in all the time, continually. And so if we would grow, and if we would be cemented in our Christian faith, we must be 
searching the scriptures more and more. We must have what I would like to call a Berean faith. Now, the Bereans, of course, have long disappeared, but they left behind a legacy, an example that many, many Christians have followed over the centuries. Little could they have known what a blessing they would be as Luke just pens this one line concerning how dedicated they were and fervent in seeking after to, to, or seeking to understand the scriptures. Now, a little background. Uh, Berea was a small city in southwest Macedonia, and southwest Macedonia would be northern Greece today. And it was sit- situated in the foothills of the Macedonian plains, and strangely enough, it was one of the most thickly inhabited cities of the time, of the Roman Empire. But the odd thing about it is that it was situated out of the way, as we would say, off the beaten path. As a matter of fact, a a historian named Cicero, who was a Roman politician and lawyer who lived about 40 years before Christ was born, he describes Berea as off the beaten track. And he writes of a Roman governor named Piso that he was so unpopular that he had to slink away to the town of Berea because of all the complaints against him. And because the city was so secluded and so out of the way, it provided safety for him for a time. Well, providentially, in Berea, Paul also found a place of safety, a place of solace, a respite from the aggression that he had faced in Thessalonica. We might say that the Bereans were as cool water splashed on the face to the Apostle Paul and Silas. Instead of hostility, they sought to understand what was being taught to them. They were sincere in their desire to wrestle with what Paul was teaching them. Verses 5 and following give us a little taste of how bad things must have been. Paul We read, recorded by Luke, he had reasoned with the Jews in the synagogues for three Sabbaths. And remember that in that time, the only Bible that existed was the Old Testament, right? From Genesis to Malachi. And Paul, using these scriptures as a master craftsman, was explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. The Christ, literally the anointed one, was the savior, uh, the, the long-awaited uh, savior by the Jews. And they, but they, the, 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 their concept of the Christ was way off from what the scriptures described. They pictured the Christ, the Messiah, as a mighty warrior and a conquering king who would come to defeat their enemies, in this case the Romans, and would restore Israel to their former glory. But Paul... No doubt pointing them to passages like, say, Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, among many others. He explained to them and he showed them that the Christ actually had to die and rise from the dead. And this is how he would save. Not by slaying his enemies, but by being slain himself. Giving himself into the hands of his enemies. He would die an accursed death on the cross since anyone who hung on a tree was under God's curse. He would be in the belly of the earth for three days, as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish. But he would also rise from the dead to conquer sin and death for them and for us. That's the gospel that Paul was proclaiming. And some of them, Luke records, some of the Jews and many Greeks were persuaded, and they joined 
Paul and Silas. But then we read of the reaction of the Jews who were not persuaded. They became jealous and they caused an uproar in the city. And they attacked the house of Jason, a convert. And things became so dangerous that Paul and Silas actually had to be spirited out of the city at night. And that's when they came to Berea. And what's interesting is that we don't read in, in verse 10, the next verse, of them taking some time to rest, taking some time to idle, licking their wounds, you know, telling people their stories so that people will feel sorry for them. We read immediately they went into the Jewish synagogue in Berea and they began to preach the gospel. And Luke records for us in verse 11, now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And so what a stark contrast to the reception they'd received in Thessalonica. And Luke, who, who pens this record under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, describes the Bereans here as noble. It's an interesting Greek word. It refers to someone who is who we might call aristocratic, someone who is high-born. We use the term sometimes a blue blood, uh, someone of breeding. That's the word he used. And if the word is used of animals, it usually refers to their pedigree. It's a good pedigree, they're purebred. And so the word has to do with nobility, a person who is well-born, honorable. It's Luke's way of saying, perhaps to put it in the, the way we would talk today, that the Bereans were a little bit more classy than the ones in Thessalonica, in that they were willing to listen and to consider to think about what they were hearing without dismissing it outright. They were not closed-minded. They were intellectually sharp and willing to apply their brain to what they were hearing. They received the word with all eagerness. Now, what was that word that was brought to them? Well, again, verse 3 gives us a good indication. Paul was doing the same thing he had done in Thessalonica. He was explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. And the weird thing is that even though they had the very scriptures, the Old Testament, that spoke of these things, and that Paul was proving from the Old Testament, for the most part, this was a foreign concept in the minds of the Jews and the converts to Judaism. As we said, the, the thinking was that the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, would come as a warrior and a conqueror. But according to the Old Testament scriptures, his triumph would actually be over sin and death. But this could only be accomplished by his own sin or by his own death and resurrection. Now, the Jews in Thessalonica heard this, and how do they react? They react with violence and rage. The Jews and the converts in Berea heard it with all eagerness. That is, there was a willingness and an openness in them to hear and to think about and to consider what they were hearing, what they were learning. And this, of course, would have been created by the Holy Spirit. This is not because they were uh, in any way smarter than anybody else or, or more holy or whatever it may be. This was created by the Holy Spirit in the providence of God. But the Bereans didn't quickly dismiss what Paul and Silas were teaching. Maybe you've run into people 
and you've talked to them about Christianity, about the Bible, about Jesus, and, and, and they dismiss it altogether for some silly reason. Maybe just because they were born into a different religion and it's a matter of pride of culture. And so they say, well, no, I don't want nothing to do with that. You get that uh, among uh, Hindus, Buddhists, uh, Sikhs, those kinds of, uh, uh, of people who, who, um, whose religion describe who they are. At least that's how they see it. You know, their, their religion is tied to, to their identity. And so they'll, dis- I don't want to hear anything about Christianity because I'm a Sikh. That's who I am, right? Uh, some people are like that. Or sometimes people will remain members of a church that has long drifted from the truth. And why do they remain members of that church? Because they say, well, this is where I was born and I was baptized and I raised my children and I made profession of faith and uh, married my children. And so even if this church uh, is full of heresy, everything they teach is is heretical, I will remain a member of this church. It it just uh, makes you wonder if they have lost their minds. Well, the Bereans were not like that. They were blessed with minds willing to and capable of examining the claims presented. And so Luke records that they examined the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. In other words, they searched and they investigated. And the Greek word describes when it... uh, well, in our English translations, it says examine. The Greek word describes the questioning process that leads to a conclusion. The questioning process that leads to a conclusion. It's kind of like detective work. Asking questions, digging in until you come to the right answer. It's used, the same word is used in Luke 23, verse 14, where Luke records Pilate's response to the accusations of the Jews against Jesus. And his response to them was, having examined him, same Greek word, I have found no fault with this man. That is, after closely questioning Jesus, Pilate then made an an informed decision. He inquired of Jesus about the things that they were accusing him of. He searched out the matter so that he could come to a conclusion. He, He did his due diligence, as we say. The same word is used again in Acts 12, verse 19 where it speaks of King Herod examining the soldiers about Peter's escape from prison, which would have been more uh, uh, an interrogation than an investigation. And based on his conclusions, he then had the soldiers put to death. And so the sense of verse 11 is that the Bereans intensely searched the scriptures. They didn't just take Paul and Silas's Silas at their word, they dug in, they checked the references, they cross-checked the writings that were being quoted, they looked into it, they studied the Old Testament to see if these things were really recorded, and this is uh, what Paul and Silas were saying were true. Well, what biblical evidence would Paul have presented to his hearers that Jesus had to suffer and die and then rise from the dead. Well, unfortunately, we don't have the recording, obviously. But we can can take a stab at it, and we can be pretty confident that Paul would most probably have taken them all the way to the very beginning, to God's warning to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, when he warned them that if they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would surely die. And he would have reminded the, the, the listening Jews that 
Adam and Eve, of course, disobeyed at the instigation of Satan, and they brought certain and eternal death in hell, not only upon themselves, but to all mankind. But then he would have reminded them that God came seeking Adam and Eve in mercy. And he promised one who would be born of the seed of the woman and who would crush the head of the serpent. And maybe Paul would have taken them on a helicopter ride over the Old Testament, which would include a contemplation of things like the Passover lamb, whose blood protected the Israelites as the angel of death wreaked havoc on the firstborns of Egypt. It would include a study about all the Old Testament sacrifices, the priests and the high priests, the bulls and the goats and the lambs sacrificed to make atonement for Israel's sins. But then he would quickly show them, based on Israel's track record, that such bloodshed was only temporary because the blood of animals cannot eliminate the sins of man. We can expect with some kind of confidence that Paul would have quoted from Isaiah 53, the suffering servant passage of uh, the one who would be wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, crushed for our sins. He would have taken them to say Psalm 16 verse 10, where David prophesies of God not leaving his servant's soul in Sheol, nor allowing his holy one to see corruption. And as Peter did at Pentecost, he would have corrected their thinking that this was not talking about King David, but about Jesus. A good Old Testament gospel presentation to, the, to Jews would include, say, Psalm 41 verse 9, which describes the anguish of one whose familiar friend in whom he trusted, who ate his bread, had lifted up his heel against him. Who else could this have been talking about but Jesus? who was betrayed into the hands of sinful men by his close companion, Judas Iscariot. The suffering of Jesus, including his arrest, being falsely accused, mocked, condemned, and then crucified. His shout on the cross of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's all there in Psalm 22. And it's there for us too, brothers. If we take the time to examine the scriptures to find out if these things are so. And we should. Indeed, we must. It's a good example set by the Bereans here that remains true for us still today. We should not and we cannot, indeed, merely trust our emotions. Because we know that emotions change. Someone might say today, oh yeah, I love Jesus. And then you talk to them tomorrow when life has kind of flipped upside down for them. And it's, it's a very different story. But a true relationship with Jesus is built on intellectual knowledge and searching the scriptures, wrestling with the teachings of Christianity to see if these things were true. We could go so far as to say that it's actually questionable that someone can be a true Christian, and not know the content of the Bible. They've never taken the time to search the scriptures and to wrestle with these things personally. They've never examined the evidence. That, at least for me, would leave a big question mark 
over whether they are a true Christian or not, whether they really understand what they say they believe. Let it not so be so for us. And here's where we have the advantage over the Old Testament saints and even the New Testament saints in the early church. We have the completed New Testament. We have the benefit of the Spirit-inspired writings of the very apostles who interpreted and explained and applied the Old Testament for us. In addition, in our day, we have creeds and confessions. We have the writings of giants of the faith like Calvin and Luther and Augustine. In our day, we have access to podcasts and books without number, seminars that we can attend, sermons. But even so, it does not. None of that takes away from our obligation to, to examine the scriptures to see if these things are true. And so this passage calls us, all of us, for the rest of our lives to, com- to be committing increasing effort to searching the scriptures that our faith may be increasing, that it may be flourishing. May this be true for every one of us here because there is nothing more important that we can find ourselves doing. There is nothing more important than questions like, what will happen to me after this life? A question like, if God is holy, how can a person like me have hope? Who exactly is Jesus? Everybody talks about Jesus. They even use his name as a swear word. But who exactly is Jesus and what has he done? Can we explain that? Do we understand that? Have we taken the time to dig in and find these things out from the scriptures themselves? And you see, if we don't get these questions, these kinds of questions right, we have to understand that there are eternal consequences for us. And so we must get the gospel right. And once again, I'm sure it's been said many times from this pulpit, but I'll say it again. The gospel is not belonging to or attending regularly a particular church. The gospel is not that I attend Christian school and on Tuesday nights or whatever, I attend the classes, the catechism classes taught by the church. The gospel is certainly not me trying to be a good person or feeling good about myself or having tingly feelings about Jesus. The gospel, and literally, boys and girls, the gospel means good news. Okay? So here's the good news. What is the good news in the Bible? The good news can be summarized very simply with John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The gospel can be summarized simply like this. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The good news of the Bible can be heard in Romans 8 verse 1. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We hear it in John 3.18 where Jesus proclaims that he who believes in me is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Or when he says in John 3.36, he who believes in the Son has 
everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life because the wrath of God remains on him. Listen to that. Let that percolate in your head for a little bit. The wrath of God remains on him. That's a terrible thing to hear. That's a terrible situation to be in. If we do not believe in Jesus, and again, the true Jesus, the biblical Jesus, not the Jesus who is a figment of our imagination, who is a product of our emotions, if we do not believe in Jesus, the anger of God remains on us. We continue, in other words, to live under his condemnation and judgment. But when we believe in Jesus, we receive forgiveness for our sins. Adoption as children of God. Cleansing from all our sins. The promise of eternal life in heaven with him. And we must understand this and believe it. We have no hope without it. After this life, we will all stand before our judge and maker, and we will be defenseless if we have not known truly Jesus Christ and truly believed in him. And so all the more reason for, like the Bereans, we must be receiving the word with all eagerness and examining the scriptures daily to see if these things are true. See, Berean faith is not gullible or naive. Berean faith engages the mind. It, it carefully investigates because it realizes that the consequences of a false faith, a hypocritical faith, are just too horrendous to ignore. Berean faith scrutinizes the, the claims of Christianity. It asks questions like this. Does the Bible, you know, they taught me in catechism class that uh, uh, the, the, the Bible teaches that Jesus is the Son of God. He's the second person of the divine trinity, that Jesus is God himself. Does the Bible really teach that? Or the church teaches that Jesus was sinless. He never once broke any of God's commandments. He was without sin. And so he was the only one in all of history who qualifies to be my Savior. Where do you find that in the Bible? Is that really in the Bible or is that just something my catechism teacher made up? The church says that in order to save us, God had to forsake his own beloved son and allow him to die an accursed death at the hands of his enemies. Is, is that in the Bible? Is that really in the Bible? Could we find it? Am I really a sinner? Now, these are the kinds of questions that we need to be wrestling with and, and digging into the Holy Scriptures to see if these things are true and to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that they are. And by the power of Christ's Holy Spirit, believe them and live by them. And so, beloved in the Lord, let us make this a lifelong calling to be always growing in familiarity with the content of the Scriptures, building upon the foundation that has been laid in our Christian training thus far, so that the gospel of salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ may be taking our hearts captive more and more. Let us be having good conversations with each other, and especially with our children as they begin to mature and they're able to think. As soon as they're able to, 
to understand. You ask your children, this is what we, we, um, we need to learn. This is what we believe as Christians. Do you believe this? Why do you believe it? Ask them, why do you believe it? Or, or you can ask them a question like, when they're teenagers, especially around the 16, 17, 18 age, a good question would be something like, what about Christianity do you find hard to believe? What is something in, about Christianity that you struggle with? And why? Oh, okay. Then, then let's, let's get into the Bible together. Let's study the Bible together and see if we can answer your question and your struggle. Beloved, may we never tire of learning and relearning the old, old story. That our faith may be true because it is built upon knowledge, upon careful study of the Scriptures. That we may more and more be convinced of the perfection of Christ's salvation as we continue to examine the evidence. Amen. Let's...